0: Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Our Old Testament readings, we have two of them. Psalm 147, verses 1 through 6 is the first. Let's give our full attention to God's holy, perfect, unfailing Word. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. We have a verse also from Malachi, Malachi 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And one verse also from Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask him to bless it now. Lord, as we come to your word this evening, we do not need to hear the words, the thoughts, or opinions of any man. We need to hear your word. We need to hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking the truth about who He is, who You are to us. Come and speak to our hearts Your very Word, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're continuing on. We're doing this series in the Shorter Catechism. And tonight. Question four. Question four is, is one of those questions that kind of, I don't know, it, it stands out head and shoulders in some ways above so many of the others. It's just, it's a wonderful question and answer that give us in, in glorious, con- concise, but detailed uh, words the, the nature of who God is. The question is, what is God? The answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness justice, goodness, and truth it's a big question big answer so we're going to split it up into at least two we'll see how we do Uh, this evening we're going to look at the first half of the question uh, God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable about who God is in himself and his incommunicable attributes as we'll see so the question that the divines give us question four we're still on this opening territory, this foundational uh, section of the Catechism. We've asked what our chief end is. We've asked how we know what our chief end is. We've asked about what Scripture teaches. And now the first thing we've got to know once we've up, kind of laid that groundwork is, well, what is God? Is there a more important question than that? What is God? Who is God? I think that is probably one of the most Maybe the most important question and answer that we need to think about. Right? Because who, 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 is, who is God? That, that impacts everything about our lives, that shapes absolutely every detail of this world. It's all in light of who He is. Everything. How, how would you answer the question, who is God? Um, some people in our culture think of God as a kind of Superman right someone who's like us but but only b- bigger and stronger and, and uh, uh, more wise and and uh, more more just but still like us able to suffer able to change able to uh, 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 make a mistake perhaps that, that's an idea that's gained a lot of traction recently in fact it's there's, there's a label for it, open theism. This idea that God is subject to change. That he doesn't know the future. That he's just doing the best he can. Yes, he's got, uh, uh, he's got skills. He can do it well. He's, he's wise, wiser, smarter than we are. He's got power to change things, but he doesn't know the future. He's not sovereign in that way. He's capable of suffering and changing. That's an increasingly popular view. What do we say to that sort of view? Uh, there, there's others who picture God as a doting grandfather, a cosmic Santa Claus or or Easter bunny, uh, who just is there to, to wink at sin and bless your life and make it go well and, and basically help you do whatever you want to do, you know, regardless of who he is. Who is God? How do we answer that question? Right, And, and we probably wouldn't say either of those things, those, those answers that are, might be... Uh, functionally prevalent in our culture But of course we ourselves are going to have Misconceptions aren't we About who God is you know, however, however faithful Our theology is to the word Of God uh, We're still going to be uh, constantly wrestling To think about God As he truly is Our hearts are so prone To make, try to make him In our image Think of him in ways that are according to ourselves. We want to define him according to our own preferences. There might be an aspect of his attributes and character we read about in Scripture that makes us slightly uncomfortable. And so we downplay that aspect of who he is. There might be aspects of his attributes and character that we especially love, and so we we overemphasize those at the expense of others. We're always constantly needing to reform our view of God according to According to the Word of God. It's so easy to base uh, our, our view of God, our, our confession of God, on what we want instead of on who He really is in His Word. If we're really going to know the answer to the question, what and who is God, we need to hear Him tell us, don't we? We need to have Him say, This is who I am. We need to hear what He says in the Bible. And what we hear God tell us about himself in the Bible, loved ones, is the deepest, the deepest mystery. Um, I shared this recently, I think just a few weeks ago, but the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, not someone I'd normally uh, like to quote a lot in a sermon, uh, not orthodox by any means, but he got something right. He, he said the doctrine of the knowledge of God is 70,000 fathoms deep that the Christian, as he thinks about God, is like a swimmer treading water at the top of an infinite abyss. There is an infinite depth beneath you as you think about who God is. It's a glorious thought. It's also a terrifying one, in a sense. Just this, the, the infinite majesty of God We are always, at every point, out of our depth when we think about who God is and speak about who He is. Herman Boving, someone I'm much happier to quote in a sermon, great Reformed theologian, a Dutchman, of the turn of the 20th century, he writes this, There is no such thing as an adequate concept of God. There is no one who can give a definition, a delimitation of God that is adequate to his being. That's where we have to start, loved ones, as we think about this question. Who is God? The doctrine of God contains the deepest of all mysteries. We can't come to the study of who God is and say, well, I'll be able to wrap my mind around this. I'll be able to master this one. I'll be able to comprehend this one. We're never able to do that as we stand on the brink of the infinite mystery of who He is. We need to come to the study of who God is humbly, full of reverence, full of awe, ready to hear from God who He says He is and trust Him even though we don't understand it completely or clearly. Yes, we need to come and read His Word and wrestle with the truth that He reveals about Himself to us, ready to try to grasp it as tightly as we can, but not to try to make sense of it all and comprehend the whole picture as though we can master it exhaustively. Pahlink again writes this, mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. Dogmatics is just the study of theology. Acknowledging the mystery of God and the incomprehensibility of God is the lifeblood of our thinking about God. It's where we must start and must course through the veins of all our theological study and all our thinking about God as we read his word. Well, perhaps as, as we're beginning here, you know, this all sounds. This all sounds up here. All right. This is all. Um, it sounds good, but it sounds abstract, perhaps out of touch, maybe not relevant, perhaps. Right. We we need to hear. Uh, how how do I work in my workplace as a believer? Right. Isn't that what we need? We need to hear. How do I conduct myself in my marriage as a Christian? Right. How do I how do I parent my children? Well, as a Christian, these are the struggles of our lives. How do we parent well and, 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 and have a, a marriage that glorifies God? And how do we love one another well? And how do, we, um, how do we do our work that God has called us to well? Those are the practical things that we need to know. What is the doctrine of God, this glorious mystery? What does it have to do with all that? Well, loved ones... Um, even though at first glance perhaps the doctrine of God doesn't look like the most useful part of the Bible's teaching, it really is. It is useful. Nothing could be more relevant, could it? Think, think about it. Uh, what could be more relevant or more important for our lives than to know who God is? Because who God is tells me what kind of marriage I need to have and how I need to raise my kids and how I need to do my work. Who God is tells me everything. Uh, what, what everything in this world means. I can't function in this world properly if I don't know who he is. There couldn't be a more practical question than who he is. Nothing, of course, is more timely or relevant or urgent or useful than to know who he is, finally, because our chief end is to worship him, to glorify and enjoy him. That's our highest calling, and that's what the study of God leads us to. So, let's look at God's word. Shall we? And see here, just a, just a small little, just a little little glimpse of of who God says He is in His Word. So we're tackling the first part of the answer this evening, uh, not in great detail, uh, but but we're going to get through it, I believe. This first part of the answer: God is a Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Uh, we won't we won't hit every question that you might have on the answer the Catechism gives, uh, but we're going to look at a couple texts in particular. Turn with me, if you would, to the first one here, Psalm 147, verses 1 through 6. The focus of our attention as we look at verses 1 through 6 here is going to be verse 5, but verses 1 through 6 give an important context for us, essential context, really. Uh, Psalm 147. So Psalm 147 is one of these psalms that's at the end of the Psalter. It's the grand finale. It's the it's all the fireworks going off at the end of the evening. It's it's the it's the grand finale of the Psalter. And um, it has all these psalms here in it that begin and start uh, begin and end, excuse me, with a call to praise the Lord. Hallelujah literally in the Hebrew. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Um, so these psalms here collected at the end of the psalter, including this one, Psalm 147, are designed to fan the flame of fervent praise to God. Uh, they call us to praise the Lord, and they give us reason after reason after reason why we should praise Him. We see this as verse 1 of Psalm 147 begins, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant. And praise is beautiful. Psalm says, praise the Lord. And then it goes into, into the, reasons, the reasons why. We'll look at these briefly, focusing especially on, on verse 5. So in verse 2, uh, we, it says this. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Where are we? So we read that the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. So what's going on in Israel's history that would prompt them to praise the Lord for doing this? Well, it's, it's probably after the exile, when Jerusalem's been destroyed. Um, the people are carried off into exile in Babylon, and, and, but, but they're only there for a little while. And then the Lord brings them back, and he, he causes the city to be rebuilt. He gathers together all those who were, who were exiled under Babylon. The psalmist is praising God, calling the people of God to praise God, because God is the great builder of Jerusalem. He's the builder of Israel itself. He's the architect. He's the, he's the one who's building the city. And then it says that he's the one who goes and gathers every one who was scattered. He brings all Israel back to Himself. He doesn't lose a single one, doesn't forget a single one. So that's the first reason the psalm gives, why we should praise Him. He's the one who builds His kingdom, and He's the one who gathers His people. Second reason, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Right, we're still in that context of exile. How many broken hearts, how, how many wounds are there from that catastrophic event? The Babylonians coming in, uh, burning the city to the ground, uh, destroying the temple, carrying off men and women and, uh, and killing so many others. Families and lives torn apart. But the people rejoice. The Lord is the one who is healing them who's binding up their wounds. The Lord is the one who is coming as a great physician. Those who've been crushed and broken by the exile, He comes and He comforts them. He heals them. He restores them. He brings them back to the promised land. This, of course, is uh, pointing us beyond the, the, the small fulfillment that happened after the people come back from the exile in the Old Testament. It's pointing us to Christ bringing in a great number of His elect in the New Testament. He's the one, right? He comes to His people and He goes and He heals them. He says that He's come to do this very thing. Heal the lepers. Heal the blind. Raise the dead. The Lord binds up the brokenhearted. Those are the first two reasons Psalm 147 says we should give praise to Him. The third one, verse 4, He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Suddenly, we get a very a sudden shift away from these intimate things the Lord rebuilding the city and gathering His people and healing the brokenhearted. And we, we, we get this cosmic view of the glory of God and the reasons we should praise Him, not only for who He is for His people, but for His glory as the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He knows the very stars of heaven. And then we're going we're gonna to skip verse 5 for just a second. Verse 6, he goes on and he says, the Lord is the one who, who helps the humble. He puts down the proud, but he saves the humble. But in the midst of all these reasons to praise God, we have verse 5. And verse 5 sticks out here. The, the first three verses we've just looked at, and then, and then verse 6, all start the same way, with the Lord or He. They're starting with the subject, and then they're telling us what that subject does. The Lord does this, he does this, he does this. But then, in the middle of all these, we have verse 5. It doesn't start the same way. It's, it's, it's organized differently to draw our attentions especially to it. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's uh, been underlined for us, as it were. It's highlighted for us. And here's what verse 5 says. This highlighted portion of Psalm 147 says it says great is our lord and mighty in power his understanding is infinite his understanding is infinite the psalmist is describing for us the measure of god how great is his power what, how, let's measure let's try to measure his power Let's try to measure his understanding. But then the psalmist says the measure is, 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 we cannot measure him. He is God immeasurable. He is the infinite God. He has no end, no limit, no bounds, no constraints in time or space to who he is. What the psalmist is describing here is what the Shorter Catechism says He's the God who is infinite and eternal. The God who has no bounds, no limits on him whatsoever. The God who is outside of creation, outside of time. Cannot be bound by the things inside creation and inside time. These are what we call the incommunicable attributes of God. There's your your mouthful word for the week. The incommunicable attributes of God. The, The attributes of God that he doesn't communicate to the creature. There are some attributes of God that he can share with those made in his image, his love, his goodness, his justice. Those are things we can share in, but not these ones. Here we're talking about who God is in himself, things that we cannot, uh, cannot share with him because he is the creator, and we are not. God is infinite. God has no bounds. This is so hard for us to wrap our minds around. We cannot, right? We can't comprehend it. We, because everything about us and about our lives is limited. Um, that, that really defines us. We have bodies that are limited. We have uh, 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 spirits that are limited. God does not. He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. He's a pure spirit. And he's limitless. We are time-bound. Our lives are short. Uh, our, our, our lives are linear. He lasts forever outside of time. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, He is from everlasting to everlasting. The only way we can really try to understand what this is like is to say what it's not like. He is not bound by time or space. He is not like us. So this is what Psalm 147, verse 5 is teaching. God is infinite. You cannot measure Him. He's eternal. You cannot measure Him. Why is it here in this list of reasons? for us to give praise to God. It's it's, it's because this is the root and the ground of all the others. This this glorious, infinite God is the one who is so loving and so faithful to His people. He's the one who saves the humble. this, This glorious God, not impressed by anything in man. He doesn't show favor to the strong. He chooses to exalt the weak and care for them. This is why this this reason for uh, uh, praising God is embedded here in the midst of all these others. Uh, To remind us of who God is in himself as he comes down and condescends and saves us and blesses us and loves us. So that's that's the first part of what we need to see this, this evening. God is immeasurable. He's infinite. He's eternal. You cannot measure him. But there's more. So let's let's turn now. That was God immeasurable. Now let's look at God immutable. God immutable. And we're going to look at Malachi 3.6 and and Hebrews 13.8 here. Immutable just means unchangeable. It just means you cannot mutate. You cannot change. Uh, Something that is mutable. is something that can change. God is immutable. He can't change. Being immutable Able to be changed is woven into the fabric of creation. Uh, we change. That's so basic to us. We're, we're constantly changing. Heraclitus, the great, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher, famously declared, "You never step in the same river twice." What's his point? Everything is in a state of flux and change in this created order. Um, it's been said it would be better to say that we are human becomings, not human beings. Because we're not static, we're constantly changing. Uh, we grow. We start as infants. We, we grow into children, to teenagers, to young adults, to middle age. Before we know it, we're getting older and older. Change keeps on happening. We can't stop it. We are subject to it. Our our moods change from one moment to the next, perhaps. Our, our minds change. Our, our we, we get tired. We get uh, hungry. We, we get full. We get From one to the next, we're we're changing constantly. It marks our lives. God does not. God does not. He cannot. Change implies that as a process that you're improving or that you're that you're degenerating. But 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 God does not do either of those things. He is not in process. He's perfect. He is who he is from all eternity and all perfection. He cannot does not change. He is absolute. Even as he this is this is where it really, you know, where it becomes utterly incomprehensible to me. He creates the world and doesn't change as he creates the world. He enters into a covenant with man and he doesn't change even as he relates to man. It's a great mystery. How can God relate to man? How can how can God uh, have a man move from wrath to grace and yet God remains unchanged? a great mystery. But the scriptures clearly teach it. It's not a contradiction, but the scriptures teach this is a deep, deep mystery. Some, some people want to try to solve this mystery. And so as we mentioned as we started, those, there are some who are teaching open theism, this idea that, that God does change, he doesn't know the future, he's subject to, to changing, uh, that, that, uh, that he's passive and emotions can take him over like they take over us at times. But Scripture so clearly teaches God doesn't change. He is who he is, and he always is, and he always will be. Two texts here to back this up. Uh, the first, Malachi 3.6. This is the great classic proof text for God's immutability, his unchangeability. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God says it so clearly there. I don't change. Now, some people people look at that text and they say, well, there's not so much about how God doesn't change in himself, in his being. It's about his faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his covenant promises. And there's a lot to be said for saying that here. As, As we look at the context of Malachi 3, God is telling his people that he's going to be faithful to his promises that he's made to them. He's not going to change his mind and not save them. Even though they're continuing to walk in sin, he's still going to save them. The uh, context of Malachi is that the people have come back from exile, but they're lukewarm. They're not not living wholeheartedly for God. They're cynical. They're disappointed. Uh, They're not following him faithfully. God is calling them to faithfulness, but he's at the same time saying, I don't change. That's why you're not consumed. That's why you're not destroyed, because I'm faithful. But God's promise doesn't depend on the faithfulness of His people. It's never in response. His faithfulness is never in response to ours. It's it's always because He Himself is faithful first. So yes, it is true. This this verse here in Malachi, Malachi 3.6, is about God's faithfulness to His covenant. But it says more than that. Because it it clearly says God does not change. And it's rooting the faithfulness that God has to his covenant in himself. The text is saying who God is towards those outside of himself, towards his covenant people, is based on who he is inside of himself. He does not change. Therefore, he doesn't change in his faithfulness to his people. Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 18 reflects on this. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What's the author of the Hebrews saying? What am I trying to say? It is this. The unchangeable promise of God flows out of the unchangeable character of God. The unchangeable promise of God flows out of the unchangeable character of God. You see, we can't have one without the other. Uh, you, you, if you give up on the immutability of God, then you give up on the permanence of His promises to His people. If you say He's not unchangeable, then suddenly all His words become changeable. All His promises become tinged with the possibility of, uh, of failure. Again, if we look at the context here Malachi three one, we see this brought it out even more. Malachi three verse one, uh, right here in the context of verse six, says this Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi 3.1, here in the context of 3.6, where God says, I don't change, that's why you're not consumed. Malachi 3.1 promises the people of God that God himself will come to judge them and to save them. That he himself will come to judge them and to save them. Malachi 3.6 says this promise of God is is coming out of the unchangeable character of God. Because God is unchangeable, he will keep this promise to come and save his people. Where does this promise find fulfillment? Certainly, our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? He is the Lord himself who comes to save his people. The gospel writers pick up on this so clearly. They pick up on these words in Malachi uh, uh, Jesus refers to John the Baptist as the messenger promised in, in, in Malachi and then by implication Jesus is saying I am the Lord come to save you Israel the author of the Hebrews picks up on the same idea in Hebrews 13.18 he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever so in Malachi we see the faithfulness of God is un- rooted in his unchangeable character Fulfilled in the promise that He will come save His people from their sins and His Son. And then the author of the Hebrews looks at that fulfilled promise, looks at Jesus Christ, and says, that's the Lord who does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, we see two layers to this unchangeable character of our Lord Jesus, of our God, he is, he is the one who's faithful to the covenant. Here in Hebrews, he's been exalted as the great high priest who doesn't change, the, the high priest who doesn't, like the earthly priest who doesn't die, but the high priest who, who, who has a, an ongoing ministry of interceding, praying for his people. Uh, he's the high priest who's offered the once for all unchangingly effective sacrifice for sins. Uh, Hebrews is glorying in these things. He's the one whose love and care for us don't change. But all of this is rooted in the fact that he is very God of very God who cannot change. The love, the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus to us has never changed. He has the same heart towards us now that he had toward his people as he walked on the earth over 2,000 years ago. He is the same. He will be the same. Four points of application as we close this evening, loved ones. Four things to take this doctrine of our unchangeable, infinite, eternal God and and bring it down to our hearts and bring it down to our lives. Number one, life is brief. It is short. It is fleeting. Isaiah 40 says human life is like the grass. It's like a flower that springs up in a day and withers in a day. Psalm 90 puts it like this. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So much in in our lives claims to be permanent, but it is not. The days are fleeting away. So, where do you look in a world like that? You look to the unchanging God who does not ever, cannot ever change. This is exactly what Psalm 90 itself does. We saw this a few weeks ago in our study of that Psalm. Yes, it's about the, the changeableness of man, but it's also, it, it roots it all, it calls us to hope in the unchangeable character of God. Deuteronomy thirty three twenty seven 27 puts it so wonderfully like this. The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. That's what we need in a world so full of change, so full of, uh, of, uh, of brevity, That's where, where things are constantly uh, uh, in flux. That, that God does not, cannot be bound, that underneath me are His everlasting arms so that's the first point of application in the face of life's brevity look to the unchanging god and trust in him second and all the uncertainties of life right there's so many there are breathtaking and painful changes that can happen so fast i was reminded of this i heard it often in the news as as we looked and commemorated the the 9 11 anniversary Uh, 20 years since 9-11 and and that day right, started out like so many other days and then in an instant it all changed what do we do in a world where that sort of thing happens where change terrible changes can happen so quickly well we rest in our unchangeable God don't put your trust in the creation in any person in yourself you're going to change you're going to fail only the Lord is the unchangeable creator Third point of application: Trust the Lord will keep His covenant promises to you. This is where the scripture, uh, this is where the scripture drives. This is the point the scriptures drive, as they speak of God's unchangeable and everlasting character. It's all driving this: Trust that His promise to you will hold. The promise He's made to you in Christ will hold. Sometimes we can feel suspicious of God. We can, we can feel like, I'm not sure what his providence is going to bring next, and I'm not really sure it's going to be good for me after all, even though I know he says it will be. Loved ones, he does not change. He cannot change. He's sworn to you to bless you in Christ if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus. He cannot change. Fourth point of application. Bow down and worship Him. Stand in awe of your unchanging, eternal, and infinite God. He is greater than we can imagine. He's beyond our comprehension. Humble yourself before Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. Not yourself. Trust Him with everything you have and everything you are. Worship Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we rejoice in who You are in Yourself, and we rejoice in who You are for us, Your people. We are not worthy of the least of all your loving kindnesses towards us. We do not deserve to have such a faithful and unchanging God. Keep our hearts, we pray, in this fickle world. Keep our hearts fixed fast on you. We ask it for our Savior's sake. Amen.